This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and on the show today, we will plunge into the information war raging in our country on social media and in the mainstream news media. Fake news manufactured in Europe helped catapult Donald Trump into the White House. And since his inauguration, the news media has been struggling with how to handle statements from the president and his lieutenants. Is Donald Trump a climate denier? What is a lie? What is factual? And what is an alternative fact? Liberals are focused on facts and decry the post-fact world. Conservatives pay more attention to values and narratives, which are more likely to be remembered by the human brain. The reality is facts are important, but they may not be as important as you think they are. Facts often don't change hearts and minds. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two distinguished language and journalism experts. George Lakoff is a linguist at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studies how human brains process language and ideas. He is the author of numerous popular books, including The Political Mind, Why You Can't Understand 21st Century American Politics with an 18th Century Brain. And... Don't even think of an elephant. Know your values and frame the debate. Robert Rosenthal is executive director of the Center for Investigative Reporting, which produces the Reveal radio show and other award-winning journalism. He previously was the managing editor of the San Francisco Chronicle and editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was also an editorial assistant at the New York Times on the Pulitzer Prize-winning Pentagon Papers Project. Please welcome them to Climate One. George Lakoff, uh, we'll get into the, the uh, factual part of the brain and the emotional part of the brain, and they're, they're connected. Uh, but first, I want to go to a story in an emotional place with you. Where were you on election night 2016, and how did you feel? Well, um, we were having uh, some tacos, <laughs> and uh, I felt pretty bad after a while. <laughs> and it wasn't just the tacos. <laughs> Uh, but what's strange is um, in March 2016, I wrote a paper called Understanding Trump, which predicted that he would get 47% of the vote and uh, told exactly why and what he did, how he worked, and uh, why he was very smart and why he um, used uh, other people's brains to his advantage. And um, he only got 46% of the vote, but certain percentages were taken away by other candidates. And, uh, and, of course, the Democrats did everything they could to get him elected. So we can talk about that. We will uh, talk about that in the way that uh, you'll say, for example, that Hillary Clinton put Trump in the middle of her campaigns. Robert Rosenthal, another emotional day. I'll ask you about Inauguration Day. Where were you and how did you feel? By that time, I think, the sh- no, I wasn't surprised he won, uh, but I, I, was, I was listening to his words 
And mm-hmm. I, I found them uh, the dark side of America that I don't really see. And, and it, I was sorry that he didn't uh, have a different message for the country and for, for the whole world, really. We invited a pollster, a Republican pollster, uh, to join the program today uh, from Denver who works for John McCain and other national figures. She couldn't make the trip to San Francisco. We look forward to hearing from her another day. We did want to hear from a Trump voter, so we went, sent one of our producers to talk with one, something few people in blue states and cities do these days, although there are more Trump voters in San Francisco than you might think. Nearly 10% of voters, 37,000 people in the bluest city, in the bluest state, went for Trump. So let's hear uh, from uh, Gary Malazian and hear what he has to say about Donald Trump. My name is Gary E. Malazian. I started out in Fresno. I went to UC Davis. I took my doctorate there in plant physiology. I turned my back on that because the politics in academia... The American people have too much time, too much money, and too much freedom. And they don't know what to do with those things. And San Francisco is the capital of that. The whiniest groups, if you read the Chronicle, are gays, blacks, and women. And you can never do enough for any one of those groups. They always want more. The game plan in San Francisco is to kill and destroy Donald Trump. The guy hasn't even been in office. He hasn't put his people together yet. And they're criticizing, condemning, and complaining. These folks are dropping beneath the Tea Party. They're doing the exact same thing that they accuse the Tea Party of doing. That's not the high road. I was going to vote for Bernie. Because I think he had uh, the message that he gave. But he was up against a snake. America's biggest failing is supporting single women to have babies that they cannot afford. That brings the whole culture down. I mean, I grew up in a family that disciplined their children. The problem with women that having babies without a father, there's no discipline. It's all enabling. Fundamentally, in my head, women are nurturers. And God bless them. We need nurturing. Men are pioneers. Mankind should learn to live together in peace and harmony and not combat each other. And I think that's where Mr. Trump is headed. I give me hope because I have a belief system that I haven't had to change my whole life. That gives me hope. Trump voter Gary Malazian, who's in the House tonight. Uh, George Lakoff, a lot there, uh, nurturing mothers, yet uh, Hillary Clinton was a snake, a lot there. How do you, how do you analyze that? Well, um, uh, I wrote a book called Moral Politics a little over 20 years ago, uh, which came about by asking, why do certain positions fit together? You know, uh, conservatives are, uh, say, we, we're going to get rid of abortions, uh, but are we going to have a flat tax? What does taxation have to do with abortion? We're going to get rid of environmental regulations. What does that have to do with those? Everybody should be able to, to own a gun. What does that have to do with any of the others? And on and on. And I figured it out, finally, uh, when uh, I realized one of my students had written a paper that we all have a metaphor of the nation as a family. We have founding fathers. We send our sons and daughters to war. We have homeland security. And nobody says, what do you mean fathers? I mean, they have founding fathers. The nation is a family. The question is, what kind of family? 
And what we found was that there are two types of families, a strict father family and a nurturing parent family, which corresponds to, um, metaphorically to um, uh, progressive and conservative thought, but they're not just that way. There are some people who are only one and only the other, but many people who are, what is a moderate? A moderate is somebody who is mostly one and partly the other in various ways. And then conservatives, uh, which we'll, we'll get into in a minute, have what is called in-group nurturance. If you're in a conservative church, they'll take care of people who are needy, who are church members. If you're in a military unit, you take care of the people in that military unit, and the military takes care of its own. Uh, if, um, you know, a, um, uh, a lot of people who are conservative, and I was brought up among them, uh, have in-groups that they care about. They might be their family, their neighbors, uh, their community, uh, the people who um, you know they go bowling with, or whoever. And I, and I think it's important that that's the case because they really do take care of them. You know, you'll find um, when there is a fire threatening the neighbors' homes, there are these conservative guys out there, you know, manning the fire hoses. Uh, if there's a flood, they'll be throwing the sandbags. Uh, they, they do care about the community seriously because it's their in-group. And that's part of conservatism. Now, there are conservatives like Trump who don't have that kind of views. He's like total, almost, except for his own family. He does His family is his in-group. But aside from that, that's it. Now, what is, uh, what is uh, a strict father family? And that's the big deal. In a strict father family, the, family, the father knows right from wrong, and that gives him authority. He has to impose it. He has to make sure his kids are, are, do what he says, not do what feels good. You've heard about feel-good liberalism. It means they don't have a strict enough father. And what, it says is, what he says is that if they don't do what he says, if they you know, stand up to him or sass him or anything like that, and don't show respect then he's supposed to punish them. It's called tough love. Because he loves them, he has to punish them. It's his duty. And not only that, the child, if the child tries to avoid the punishment, then they do what he says. And if they do that and don't do what feels good, they get discipline. And if they have discipline, they should be able to go out in the world and be prosperous. So what if they're not prosperous? It means they don't have discipline, therefore they can't be moral, and they deserve their poverty. So, you know, poor people are lazy. And then you have other, uh, a further part, and this is the big deal. If it's the case that authority and morality go together, then what, what that says is that if that is a natural thing in the world, the way you find out who is better than who, who has, you know, better morality, is by looking at who won. And so you have things like religion won out. So you have a hierarchy, a moral hierarchy of God above man. Uh, you have uh, man above nature. We've conquered nature. Nature is there for you. Take whatever you want of it. Man above nature. You have uh, the rich above the poor. Employers above employees. Uh, you have um, uh, adults above children in 21 states. Uh, Teachers and coaches who have children who don't listen to them uh, can, be, you know, can beat their kids with sticks. That's a law in 21 states. Uh, 
if you, and you can imagine the states. <laughs> and uh, and you're, you'll be right. The, uh, the other part of this is you then have Western culture above non-Western culture, because Western culture won out. And you have America above other nations, America first, men above women, whites above non-whites, Christians above non-Christians, straights above gays. That's the moral hierarchy. Take any ultra-right-wing conservative position, and you'll find the place in that hierarchy. That hierarchy determines the ultra-right view of the world. Robert Rosenthal, uh, Brendan Nyhan wrote recently at the New York Times that before the election, fake news was primarily aimed at Trump voters. After the election, uh, research shows that Democrats are more likely to believe conspiracy-minded statements than a month before the election. He wrote that, quote, losing political control can make people more vulnerable to misinformation and conspiracy theories. I'd like to hear your thoughts on fake news and whether some people, how Democrats are just as susceptible, <coughs> more so now, perhaps, after the election. Yeah, well, fake news has uh, always existed, uh, you know, propaganda, disinformation, uh, I think the difference today is that you have the technology to spread it instantly and, and through social media. And we, we tend to think about media and throw all you know, newspapers, television, but media is really different than journalism. And I think what happened with the conspiracy ideas or theories taking, getting more traction, say, from the losers is because they lost and they wanted to believe something. And it's an explanation. But, you know, I think the real big issue here is information. And, and to me, it almost supersedes journalism or media. And it's how information is disseminated and believed and controlled. And we are now in an information civil war because you believe what you want to believe and you don't believe what, what they believe. And it's, to me, the potential in history for the worst things that come out in terms of uh, autocratic dictatorships, whatever you want to call it, it always goes to the control of the information. And, and if you're in an information world where the information only comes, which we don't have right now, from the government, obviously that's the worst case scenario. So I think it's really important uh, to understand that, and that's not just journalism or media, it's the way information moves and the way it moves today, and it's accelerated. And the fact is that... Uh, the president now is the uh, biggest and most influential publisher in the world through Twitter. And I think we all have to also think about that we are, our brains aren't made to process information with the speed of we're getting it today. And just think about your own lives or 20 years ago where you, maybe you had a cell phone and what that device means today in terms of how you get and also receive information. Robert Rosenthal is the executive director of the Center for Investigative Reporting. George Lakoff, Amanda Taub wrote recently in the New York Times, quote, Americans' deep bias against the political party they oppose is so strong that it acts as a kind of partisan prism for facts, refracting a different reality to Republicans than to Democrats. And she goes on to say that partisanship is core to our identity now in a way that it didn't used to be in the past. First of all, it has been in the past to a large extent, but we never noticed it, and it wasn't to this extent. But I think you have to understand something about the brain to understand what's going on here. Every idea is physical. It's in your neural circuitry. You think with your brains. Ideas don't float through the air. 
Now, what that means is that if you have an, ide- uh, an ideology, a worldview of any kind, you have lots of complex circuitry, lots of ideas, and um, they're fixed. They're, you know, they're not going anywhere. Now, you can only understand things that your brain allows you to understand. And that's a major point. So if you have just one worldview, and I, by the way, I think most people have more than one at once, but if you have only one worldview, what happens when you get information in that does not fit that worldview? It may not be noticed. It may be ignored. It may be changed. You may actively change it, and there's experiments that show that people do change it. There, uh, it can be uh, ridiculed or attacked. But do facts change minds? Do facts change minds? It depends. So in these cases, facts may not change minds. And there's a deep reason for this. If you, let's suppose you have uh, either a, uh, a nurturant worldview, like, you know, progressive worldview or conservative worldview, your very being is defined by that worldview. And especially if you have a, the strict father worldview, it's very important that, that your identity, your very identity is wrapped up in that worldview. That's who you are because what is important is it defines right and wrong and you want to think you're right in everything you do. Everybody does. So the result of that is that you have an identity defined by a moral worldview. And what that means is there anything entailed by that worldview has to be truth. Your worldview must be a higher truth. And anything that, is, that follows from it is, and if it isn't a fact, if it isn't out there and independent of the worldview, that becomes an alternative fact. The alternative facts are those things that follow from those, those, that part of the worldview that is unchangeable, that defines who you are, and that there's no alternative to. Now, many people are partly progressive and partly conservative, and we'll go there in a while. But I think the main thing is that the idea of an alternative fact relative to uh, Trump, who has, I think, virtually just a a strict father worldview with the exception of maybe his family, uh, that's it. I mean, and what happens is, if you have that worldview, then... Certain things must be facts, or else your whole identity goes. And that's, I think, true of a lot of Trump supporters, of the strong Trump supporters, who will take lies. Suppose there are facts out there and they're told lies. Well, the lies are not as important as the truth that defines who they are. They're not as important as the truth that defines who they are. And that is very important. That's why you can say, oh, he's a liar, he's a liar, and a liar, and it won't matter. Uh, Robert Rosenthal, uh, there's been quite a bit of discussion in journals on when to call a lie a lie. How are you handling that uh, and all these shades of lies and mistruths, false statements? Well, we're, you know, we, we're not producing content every day. And I think you know, investigative reporting is deeply fact-based. It's based on documents, it's on the record sources, and everything we do goes to a tremendous legal vetting because we get sued and we get, prior to publication, very often threats, either from corporations, individuals, who we, through, through attorneys. So we really believe we're fact-based. Uh, but I, I think if, if I was in, in running the newspaper like I once did, 
I think you have to call it out. But I, I also think that this, this question of facts, they, they don't matter if your belief system doesn't accept them. Because I, I, your emotion, your belief system, and you go back to, you know, again, uh, whole societies that were moved not by facts, but by information, propaganda that the masses went along with. And if you stood up to the facts, you were punished. And you were an outsider. You were excluded. Uh, I think that in the country today, we, we are f- split, obviously. Uh, and there's probably a bigger, I call it the middle, or a movable middle, who might react to facts, who are also quite emotional and driven by their emotions, but want to believe sort of the, the best thing or the better things. And also, you know, the framework of what American democracy means and what American culture is and the uniqueness of American society as it's evolved is something that I think a lot of people hold on to. I also think that right now the conversation, if people are going to come together again, there are places where values will, will be met. You know, George mentioned, uh, you know, in, in the military, I'm not sure it's a conservative value, but I would call it more of a team value. You have a common purpose. You have a goal. You're under threat. You're coming together no matter who you are, what your politics are, and that's some of the strongest bonding you can have. That happens in sports, it happens in the right environment, in, in a business or in a university, when you have a common goal, you share. We're fractured right now. And the other thing I think that's really complicated, it's, that's different today also, with, especially with the sp- speed of information and the ability to watch things, your, people are confused about what is opinion and what are, what's journalism or facts. And the way the business models for Fox or MSNBC and others have evolved is about being counter, totally counter, and having a pure political point of view and agenda. And people who watch that, I remember watching something uh, the BBC did recently where they interviewed a, a bunch of Trump supporters uh, in Arkansas, and one woman was sticking to something which was completely not true, and the person interviewing said, here are all the facts. She said, but I read it on the Internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, like, that's God's word. So, again, the people believe the sources they want to believe, and that's really something that I don't think any of us have an answer to in this divided, fractured civil war we're in. President Donald Trump held a press conference to announce his new nominee for Secretary of, of Labor, and it quickly morphed into an all-out attack on the press. Let's take a listen. Unfortunately, much of the media in Washington, D.C., along with New York, Los Angeles, in particular, speaks not for the people, but for the special interests and for those profiting off a very, very obviously broken system. The press has become so dishonest that if we don't talk about it, we are doing a tremendous disservice to the American people. Tremendous disservice. We have to talk about it to find out what's going on, because the press honestly is out of control. The level of dishonesty is out of control. Robert Rosenthal, you and your profession out of control? No, uh, I think, uh, you know, when when President Trump... Um, the other day said, you know, the enemy, the American media is the enemy of the American people. This is, you know, out of the playbook of, of the worst leaders in the history of the world. And uh, it's extremely dangerous. Uh, and, there, you know, I, I worked on something a few years ago where Chauncey Bailey, who was an African-American journalist, was assassinated, you know, in the streets of Oakland when he went to work one day. And I was part of a team of people who actually did stories that led to uh, the killers who are now in jail. 
So journalists, uh, you know, law enforcement, the military, journalists are maybe one of the other professions in the world where they're targeted and killed and put in jail and silenced because of their work. And obviously this country uh, and the founding fathers understood the role of a free press. So I find that uh, personally appalling and as a journalist uh, really threatening and it's going to lead to things, uh, there are consequences for words and information. And I think, uh, you know, that's something, whatever your politics are, uh, it's really something to think about in term, terms of what uh, this country is based on. And I think one of the things about the press, every president sees the press as part of the opposition. It's the nature of, of our society. So when, the, when, when, when it's not as if the press is focused on Trump. He's certainly given us a lot of uh, grist. But Obama actually uh, was one of the most harshest in terms of the press and following up on whistleblowers to try and get their sources more than any president in the history of the country combined. So it's not necessarily a Democratic or a Republican Issue. It's really about the issues and values I, w- I mentioned earlier of what American democracy is based on. George Lakoff, yeah, the, making the enemy, the, calling the press the enemy of the state or enemy of the people. Look, the, pre- the, the press did something really dumb after that happened. They came out with a Twitter feed, not the enemy of the people, right? It's like... You know, Nixon said, I am not a crook. Everybody thought he was a crook. I wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant. What would you think of? An elephant. You know, not the enemy. You're going to think of them as the enemy. You know, I came out the next day and I wrote a piece, uh, again, Twitter, the Twitter feed of Protect the Truth and explained why that, why that was. And the reason is very simple. In order to negate something you have to activate in your brain what is being negated, right? And every time you activate something in your brain, it becomes stronger. So the more you negate something, the stronger it gets. And you find lots of progressive TV shows and so on where they will constantly take some outrageous thing set on Fox News, and then they'll negate it, and they'll repeat it, and negate it, and repeat it, and negate it. thus helping the other side all the time. Yeah, I just just want to follow up. I think, I agree, but I think that was an incredibly shrewd thing he said, actually, because whatever the follow-up was, we're not the enemy. But what he's really doing is setting the, laying the groundwork, and it will happen over and over and over again, for whatever is critical of him is not to be believed. And it's your enemy. It's not my enemy. It's your enemy. So this information, this story... So going forward, and I think there will be a lot more coming that was critical, it's, it's, he's going to remind people, don't believe it, don't believe it, don't believe it. They are the enemy. They lie. So that's going to be the constant refrain. It's the messaging also. It's not just the one statement. It's the con- it'll be a continual theme going forward. And, and for the people who think the press is the enemy, anything that's critical of Trump will be coming from the enemy. Who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? What do you do to your enemies? And when he says the people, he means the people who follow him. So, you know, and you got that with Pence uh, talking to the NATO leaders who said, oh, the American people want NATO to, to, you know, have a bigger military. It's the American people, right? It's not the American people. It's Trump. And he, and he stands for the people who are following him. And that's an important distinction. 
There's another very important thing about information. When Lincoln talked about uh, a government of, by, and for the people, if a government is of the people, there is no line between the government and the people and no informational line. You have information should flow in both ways. What has happened now is we now have a gag rule on the government. That is, uh, things like the EPA and the Food and Drug Administration and so on are not allowed to tell their results to the people, and they don't take information from it, and they don't pay any attention to it. What that does is get rid of the notion of a government of the people. That truth is part of democracy. It's part of democracy, that, and we never really noticed it before. We thought elections would just give us that and it'd be okay. Now we notice that the of, by, and for the people is really very important. By the people. The people are not billionaires. We have government by billionaires now. What about for the people? That has to do with caring. You know, this government was set up originally by citizens who cared about other people, worked through the government to provide public resources for everybody, whether they're in business or private life. All those resources, uh, you know, whether they're, they're roads and bridges or airports or scientific research, etc., is for everybody, whether you're in business and so on. And you can't have either private life or private enterprise without that. Now, that whole idea of public resources is being turned on its head. The Republicans want to privatize everything that is a public resource. You know, whether it's the private, they want to have, have they, when they want to build infrastructure, they want it to be owned. They want the highways to be owned, etc. That's what, when they talk infrastructure, they don't mean public infrastructure. If you're just joining us, this is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and our guests are Robert Rosenthal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and George Lakoff, the cognitive linguist from the University of California at Berkeley. George Lakoff, I want to hear your thoughts on framing as it relates to energy and climate change. Um, People on the right talk about energy independence. People on the left talk about save the planet. So let's get your take on that, as well as climate denial and skepticism, which is something very powerful in ascendance in Washington right now. Well, first of all, climate deniers don't come along and say, I'm going to deny climate, you know, or I'm going to deny science. They don't do that at all. You know, what happens is that if they have a worldview which doesn't allow that in, so a strict father worldview will have... Uh, corporations, uh, you know, who are employers above other people. And that means they can do what they want. They're, they're moral in, you know, in that hierarchy. And therefore, they can do all sorts of things against the environment because that's, that's okay. And so that idea of the, they're doing things that are bad for the environment and for the planet doesn't enter. It can't be there. Now, a a whole lot of people who are progressives and Democrats have another form of denial and of science denial, but they don't recognize it. It has to do with the way they reason. There's a view of reason that goes back to Descartes in 1650. It says that uh, thought is logic. Descartes did, you know, was a logician. He said, things go by. It's logic. That all thought is conscious. We now know it's 98% unconscious. Thought isn't logic. It has to do with framing metaphors and other kinds of, of, of mental structures. Uh, 
You know, and what happens is there are a lot of people who accept that. And if you believe that everybody has the same notion of thought and that it's logic, it will follow that if you just tell people the facts, they'll all reason to the right conclusion. Now, we know that that keeps being false. And, you know, it's, it's not that facts don't matter. They do matter. But what's happening is people who believe that have a false view of reason, which is denying neuroscience and cognitive science. They're science deniers of a different kind. We're going to go to our lightning round and climate one with George Lakoff and Robert Rosenthal. Uh, yes or no question. Uh, first for George Lakoff. I know this is hard for professors. Um, and, and, uh, true or false, George Lakoff. In the last 50 years, Americans have become more tolerant of people with different skin colors and less tolerant of people with different political views. Sort of. Uh, uh, True or false, Robert Rosenthal, Donald Trump has been good for the business of commercial media. True. George Lakoff, Republicans are more disciplined and more skilled at messaging than Democrats. Absolutely. And there's a good reason for it. Robert Rosenthal, in part, that's because Democrats are convinced facts, truth and justice are on their side and they will prevail. That's mushy. Uh, <laughs> true, I guess. Mushy. You can say mushy. Um, George Lakoff, yes or no? A conservative brain is wired differently than a liberal brain. Yes. Uh, Robert Rosenthal, fake news has always been here and is here to stay. True. George Lakoff, Democrats and Republicans are equally guilty of creating our nation's deep partisan divide. Um, yeah, I think that's true. George Lakoff, the Affordable Care Act was poorly named because while it expanded health care insurance for 20 million Americans, it did not reduce costs. False. This is an association uh, question where I'll mention something and you tell me that either the first thing that comes into your mind or George Lakoff, you can mention a, a counter frame. So George Lakoff, tax relief. Ah, investment. Robert Rosenthal, death panels. Uh, life. <laughs> uh, George Lakoff, death tax. Millionaires. <laughs> George Lakoff, climate change. Invented by conservatives. <laughs> it was invented by Frank Luntz, who, thought, who didn't want global warming. That sounded like people were responsible. You let, you let students do this in your classroom and you ask for one word? <laughs> <laughs> I never ask. I never do that. I, never, I would never ask students for one word. I don't think students I ever get think. <laughs> I don't know if students ever get a word in in his class. Oh, um, no, no, no. They, they, <laughs> the whole point is to get them to talk. Let's end it there. Our thanks for the lightning round. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. The new administration has made no secret of its views on climate change. Will the rest of the country follow suit? Shortly after the election, an audience member asked the panel what catastrophic event could finally wake the nation up to the dangers of global warming. Tom Tolles, editorial cartoonist for The Washington Post, gave a rather surprising answer. We've had massive fires. We have uh, flooding from hurricanes. We've had tornadoes. We've had uh, flooding from just freak rainstorms. I have my own theory is fires weren't enough, flooding wasn't enough, hurricanes, tornadoes weren't enough. The environmental event that's going to change the understanding 
of this issue is when people come out of their houses and march on Washington and march on fossil fuel companies, it's going to be a tidal wave of human beings. That's what it takes right now. Everybody's going to have to get out of their chairs and do something. That's Tom Tolles of The Washington Post speaking about a possible major weather event on Capitol Hill. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. George Lakoff, you did a taxonomy of Donald Trump's tweets that included the preemptive framing, hacking the DNC was the DNC's fault, a trial balloon, you know, we should expand our nuclear arsenal, as well as deflection and diversion. So explain quickly those, the taxonomy, the predictable taxonomy of his tweets. Which Every tweet is strategic, and he knows exactly what he's doing in every single Tweet. So you don't buy this impulsive uh, 3 a.m. I'm just going to like pissed off and do something. You don't buy that nonsense. Okay. It's all t- strategic. There are four types. One, he's trying to frame, put out a frame first, so he gets to frame it before anybody else does. Like for example, um, you know, uh, he actually won the popular vote because there are three to five million uh, illegals voting. Right? That's you know uh, a preemptive frame. Uh, there is a trial balloon about uh, everybody should have nuclear weapons. Let's see what happens, you know. And, you know, for a, a day it was sort of out there in the news and then forgotten, right? So, yeah, he can keep on saying that. Uh, there, so there are trial balloons. Uh, diversions all the time, you know. Yes, uh, the question arose about the emoluments clause and whether he should be, uh, you know, uh, uh, thrown out of office because of it. Uh, or prosecuted because of it. And uh, so what does he do? He talks about Meryl Streep. And then the the, the media, like dogs following a ball, (laughs) they say, oh, for three days we're going to show Meryl Streep and have debates about whether celebrities should be able to talk about politics, and on and on. And he always can throw a, a diversion, almost everything he does. In fact, most of the most outrageous things he does is to divert you from noticing what Paul Ryan Trump is doing. Robert Rosenthal, what about that? Media's taking the bait. They're following the distraction sideshow from what's really going on. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, And I think, again, it's it's speed. If you think about 20 years ago, if there was no Internet, and you basically had 25 years ago your newspaper, three networks, you had CNN, where he's taken advantage of the speed and his ability, as I said earlier, to be the world's largest and most paid attention to publisher. And I agree with George. A lot of that is diversion, it's distraction, it's trial balloons. And we're, we're dealing with a fire hose constantly. And, and, you know, you need to take time and really, I think, to consume information. Now, you really have to go to multiple sources. And I think it's really important also to go to sources you are going to be appalled by in terms of how they're telling a story and it's not just the stories they're telling. It's also what's not being reported to the other side or from your point of view. So it's, it's the selectivity of the information they're pushing to their audience, which they know is coming to them. But I think Twitter, his use of Twitter, I think, is, is brilliant, really. He's mastered it the same way past dictators mastered other mass media. If you think about radio, which, you know, the, what the Germans did, what Hitler did, really, it was radio. We did a poll on Twitter, and we asked uh, followers, why did you vote for your candidate? 39% said I was persuaded by facts. 29% said the other person was a liar. 13% said an issue. 
and 19% said I voted for my party. So there's sort of, there's tribe, there's facts, there's villainization. George Lakoff, your take on those, those uh, responses. Well, first, uh, they thought the, you know, when you repeat crooked Hillary over, over and over again, and it's actually 20 years of repetition of that by Republicans, uh, what happens is it gets into people's brains. I mean, it's heard over and over again, and, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. You get the start, your, your brain takes it in, it becomes true, because it's said re- repeatedly, and a reframe that's repeated is taken in unless you are constantly vigilant against it. And people generally can't be constantly vigilant against it. So, yeah, they thought that Hillary was a liar, you know, when, in fact, she mostly wasn't. Now, Politicians occasionally lie here and there, and you're going to get just about any politician will do that. But that's different from being a systematic liar on major issues. Uh, Robert Rosenthal, John Stewart changed the news business by having a fake news show. Tell us about the power of humor. And news is so depressing that people are increasingly looking to, to humor and how that's, we'll get to George Lakoff and how that's challenging to oppose. Well, I think, you know, it's like taking medicine and if it tastes better, you even might swallow it. I think humor is crucial. I mean, satire has always had a huge role uh, in societies and, and I think it's important to try and today use different forms of storytelling and take advantage not only of the technology but the fact that people are so isolated when they consume most of their information to get them together. One of the things we do is we actually do plays based on some of our deeply reported investigative stories. So I think humor is crucial and obviously it's easy to consume and a lot of people got their information from Jon Stewart or Colbert now and it's a form of humor that's very biting and also from the right you have the same type of thing. I mean some people... Uh, I don't think Alex Jones considers himself a humorist, but some people watching him might be appalled, but also really consumed by that. And I think one of the things, again, is this constant messaging, that the refrain, and and when people who are not journalists per- perceived it that, Sean Hannity last night, I watched him when he went to the CPAC meeting, <clears throat> he was basically, sounded like exactly like Donald Trump, his his message to that. So... He's, he's a zephyr in a sense for that. And again, the people are confused. They don't know. When they, they watch something, they think it's, they think it's factual information. Even, so opinion and fact are completely blurred, and point of view really trumps everything. No pun intended. Robert Rosenthal is executive director of the Center for Investigative Reporting. I'm Greg Dalton. This is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. And our other guest is George Lakoff, the cognitive linguist from the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, George Lakoff, I'd like to hear your thought on humor because it's spontaneous, it's not voluntary, and it's particularly threatening to someone who's interested in authoritarian control because they can't, it's, it's, it's true and it's spontaneous. Right, because if you have authoritarian control, Humor is based on embarrassment. It's definitely based, always based on, why do you laugh when you're embarrassed, right? You know, it's based on embarrassment, and the idea of a strict father control is not to be embarrassed ever, because you're supposed to be totally in control. Now, uh, by the way, I, I think uh, somebody like Andy Borowitz, who gives obviously fake news. New Yorker writer. New Yorker writer. I, if you don't know Andy Borowitz, go to the Borowitz Report instantly. Uh, what he does is tell the truth by giving a fake story. 
And it's a deep truth using all the, the kinds of mental tropes that you have, metaphors and frames and so on, but beautifully done, artistically done, virtually every day. And why do you say that Donald Trump should be called the minority president and that should be repeated? What's your thinking there? Because that takes away his authority. And legitimacy. And legitimacy. It takes away and it reminds him over and over, as long as it's said, that he's not legitimate. Empathy is something we haven't talked about. Van Jones, after the election, did something really interesting. He went in this messy truth series. He went to, this is a liberal Democrat, went into people's living rooms in middle America and talked to people he hadn't talked to. And he had empathy for people who you know, are very different than him. So Robert Rosenthal, I'd like to th- ask you about you know, the role of empathy and kind of empathizing with uh, you know, we have this elitist coastal media, media um, in the role of empathy. Well, I, I think empathy is a, a crucial, uh, if you want to call it, tool of the best storytelling, the best journalism. You, you've, you're taken, the best journalists will take you to people you don't know, you don't understand, and hopefully make you understand their world. And empathy, again, I, is, a, is a crucial. Nearly, I bet everybody in this room, unless you're Native American, you know, your ancestors came from another country. Uh, a lot of them face tremendous adversity, racism, you name it. Uh, and should we have empathy based on our heritage? Well, I think empathy is being sort of thrown out of the block. And in this divided world we're in, in the divided United States, I think that, again, is one of the biggest threats. There is very little empathy. And I think the best journalism really needs to give voice to divided communities so you can really begin to hear and understand. I think the values question we're talking about, there are a lot of values we share. There are other things we're not going to share, but those values have to be understood so you can understand where someone is coming from. And I think that was the biggest flaw of the election where you have you know, the, the following of the campaign, but very little actually going out into the middle part of, of the country and really talking and listening to people. We did a piece really early on where we went and spoke to Trump uh, supporters all around the country. And there was this one, and I, when I heard this, I thought this is why Trump's going to win, and this was last February, where we talked to a guy in Nevada. He described himself as a loser, uh, and he had just lost his job, and he was back, he said, living in, in, with his mother in a trailer, sleeping in the same bed I slept in 25 years ago. We asked him why he liked Trump, and there's this long pause, and he goes, he makes me feel good. When I heard that, I said, whoa. And then, he, and then we said, who are you going to vote for if you don't vote for Trump? He said, Bernie, because of legalized pot. Because <laughs> <laughs> that made him feel good, too. <laughs> yeah. George Lakoff, another emotion uh, before we go to audience questions. Uh, fear. Uh, Fear has been very effective after 9-11. We heard Saddam Hussein, et cetera, at 9-11. Uh, we're now very fearful of ISIL or terrorist attack, even though we have a greater chance of being killed by uh, lightning or other things. And yet fear for climate change doesn't seem to be motivating. Why are we we're af- so afraid of a terrorist attack, but we're not afraid of climate change? All right. First of all, climate change was brought in by Frank Luntz in order to, uh, for the right, because it sounded nice. Climate is like palm trees, and you think of nice climates, and change just happens. It's not a personal thing. That's why the idea was then. And then the idiots who were you know, looking at global warming accepted the right-wing view. I mean, unbelievable. Now, think for a minute about what it is in your bodies that has to do 
with understanding, whether it's climate change or global warming or whatever, that, that takes you to an understanding of the planet. Why do people like to go on vacations to the ocean, to the mountains, to beautiful places? Why? Because of the fact that they connect with nature. You are built to connect with nature. Why do you see the, the, you know, the, the um, polar bear on the ice floe and you immediately connect with the polar bear on the ice floe? You, why do you see the, these things in nature? Imagine all the possibilities of all the beautiful things that you've ever experienced in nature being taken away from you. Try to imagine that. You know, you know, just to get you to understand nature in your body, it's there. We are built to function in nature. We are biologically built. I can I go through it if you want, but you probably don't. <laughs> but, but there are things in your brain that connect you to nature. There are things in your body that connect you to nature. And we don't talk about that. We talk about something distant, as if it is the planet is something viewed from outer space, not from in your body. This is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club, and we're talking about language and politics with George Lakoff, linguist from UC Berkeley, and Robert Rosenthal, executive director of the Center for Investigative Reporting. I'm Greg Dalton. Welcome to Climate One. Let's go to our first question. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for speaking. I was wondering if you could both speak to whether you think there's any tension between empathy and um, at least our perception of fact and how we should think about navigating that both in terms of consuming media and in our interpersonal relationships with each other. Robert Rosenthal, tension yeah. between empathy and facts? I think that, yeah, there is a tension. I think, again, we're in this moment where, uh, depending on the source of the information, the, the, the spin on what you should be empathetic for it can be completely distorted and come from a different point of view. Here's an example. Uh, Hate crimes are being reported, you know, increasing, et cetera, and, and there might be a story uh, about a victim of a hate crime. Breitbart News, if you follow it, does not report hate crimes happening. What they report on is any hate crime that is debunked. So that is not going to create empathy. It might create empathy for the policemen or the investigators who debunked it. So you're taking the same set, something's happening, but you're telling the story or reporting it from completely different points of view. And I think that uh, the use of empathy in storytelling, uh, a victim uh, who's been shot or harmed in an attack in this country, you, you will feel empathy for, and that will be used one way. How much empathy do we have in our news reporting of a place where American Drones or airstrikes have killed 40 people. We don't know about those people. So there's very little empathy. They're the other. So again, I think this is really central part of, of the information gathering and how it, it's disseminated. Let's go to our next question. Can, Welcome. Wait, can I respond to that sure. uh, on empathy? Look, there's several forms of empathy, one of which is in order for me to describe conservatives, I have to put myself in their shoes. There's a form of empathy of understanding someone else who is very different from you, has different values from you, but you need to understand. Understanding is one, is one form of empathy. There are other forms of, of, of empathy as well, not just uh, you know, feeling bad for someone, but um, shifting a point of view. Take the, the word regulation. 
The word regulation is from the point of view of corporations. If you go look online with regulations, it's all stuff that, is, that the corporations have put there. And what does it mean when, for a corporation? It means there's government overreach that has uh, taken away its freedom, that has uh, burdened it, and that is costly. So we need to get rid of regulations. Why are regulations there? They're there to protect the public. Every regulation is a protection. If you shift the viewpoint from the corporations who can do whatever they want to harm people to the people who are harmed, to the public, that shift of view changes things. And it's the empathy for the public rather than for the corporations that is involved here. So what I recommend in each case is look at the viewpoint from which the framing takes place and shift the viewpoint to the public. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Daniela, local climate organizer, and I have some framing questions about climate change. I was wondering whether you think that it would be effective to rebrand people who um, speak about climate science with an accepting point of view but don't take any bold action on it to rebrand them as climate deniers since they know the facts but don't take action. We call that climate denial light, people who drive a Prius but aren't doing as much about it as they, <laughs> as they could. George Lakoff, briefly. Not that they're deniers. They're, they are people who uh, you know, don't have the courage of their convictions. I mean, period. And you know, there aren't nice, there's, not a nice, there's not a nice single word for that. But it's not having the courage of your convictions. If you have convictions, you should be acting on them. That's what they're about. They're not just things you say, oh, I have this, I have this conviction, and oh, okay, I'll sit around and I'll have another conviction. I mean, if you, if you really have a calling, if it, you, to have a conviction, it has to be in your heart, in your body, and you can't not act on it. That's what it means. And it's not just courage. It is just the, 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 will, the idea that your, your body requires you to act on it. If your conviction is embodied, if it's in you, you act. I talked recently yesterday with a person very concerned about climate change who said they're going to get a new car. I was like, oh, you're going to get an electric car? No, I'm going to buy a Jaguar. Oh, I guess you're not so concerned. Let's go to the next audience question. Hi, my name is Andy Raskin. I work, with, I work on messaging, but with uh, CEOs and leadership teams in Silicon Valley. I was curious, uh, Professor Lakoff, you mentioned that you felt that conservatives were better, inherently better at messaging, and uh, you said you'd get to that. We didn't get to it. I'm curious to hear, hear why. Very good reason for it. Uh, if you're a conservative, you go to college, what do you study? Probably some business courses. In that curriculum, there's a course called marketing. What do marketing professors study? My field, cognitive science. That is, they study the way that people really think in terms of frames, metaphors, images, narratives, and emotions. Right? That's what's in marketing and in repetition. The way, you know, how repetition works in advertising. You repeat, 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 right? That is the way they're, they're taught, and they learn it. It's second nature that they get to market their ideas. There's, if you are a progressive, you go to college, you're interested in, in politics, what do you study? Political science, law, public policy, economic theory, right? Those fields have a different view of reason. It's a view of reason from Descartes in 1650 
that says all thought is logic, it's all conscious, uh, you know, uh, there, there, and it's all ration, it's traditional rationality defined in terms of Cartesian reasoning from 1650. It, assume, it, it denies the fact that thought is 98% unconscious, that it's physical, that it's in your brain, that you need to know something about neuroscience to understand it, and so on. In short, what happens is my institutions, the universities, are miseducating progressives. As we wrap up, uh, talking, this is Climate One. We haven't talked a whole lot about climate change, but Robert Rosenthal, you know, is, is climate change getting the kind of coverage that you think it deserves in the mainstream news media? No. It's been, no. It's, it's, you know, it's been usurped. I mean, we talked earlier by the fire hose that's coming out of Washington right now. And, and no, and I think uh, it will take really big disasters. And I think one of the challenges, how, how do people, besides feeling hot or watching uh, you know, the tides rise, how does it really affect them? And we, we, like we could go on and talk about that versus the fear of a terrorist. Uh, you know, it's, it's, and I think one of the challenges, again, is to create empathy for the, the things that will be engendered from climate change or the changing environment we're in and the risks we all face for that. And it's, again, it's the future. We're in a moment now. The moment is fixating all of us. Right. Climate change seems far away in time and space, even though we have lots of examples of it. George Lakoff? Take disasters, right? We don't talk about global warming floods. We don't talk about global warming droughts. We don't talk about global warming fires. We don't talk about global warming hurricanes, tornadoes, etc., that are systemically caused by global warming. We need to be able to say, okay, here is... Here are the causes. We, we should have a little app that tells you in cartoon form what the, the sequence of causes is for every weatherman for free, <laughs> right? Because until you say this is a global warming hurricane, you are flooded out of this because, <laughs> because of the use of, of, of gas and oil and coal, right? You know, until you say things like that in public over and over again, you're not going to get it. Good uh, suggestion for the journalists who are in the audience today. If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate change and language and politics with George Lakoff, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and Robert Rosenthal, who is the executive director of the uh, Center for Investigative Reporting. Uh, we're going to end here uh, with... Uh, we've been talking about uh, fake news, propaganda, alternative facts, and journalism in a divided America. You can hear a podcast of this and other Climate One programs wherever you podcast and watch videos about energy, food, water, clean energy, and global warming uh, events at climateone.org. Thank you all for coming here at, at Climate One in San Francisco. Let's thank our guests again. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.